If you'll take your Bibles, please, open them to the book of Hebrews and the sixth chapter. And if you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, if you're able. If you're not, it's certainly not a problem. Hebrews chapter 6, and we will begin uh, again this morning at verse 13. We have one more sermon, I think, out of verse 18. Um, Today, I think, is the last one is what I mean by that. So Hebrews chapter 6, starting at verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end to all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace. We pray, Father, for your mercy to be upon us. We pray that in the midst of all things that we do, that our lives would reflect the glory of the risen Christ. God, we pray that that means that our hope would not be set on the things of this world and that our refuge would not be in vain things, but that our hope would be in Christ and that our refuge would be in that hope. God, let us fly to him and let us know what it is to be safe in the arms of the beloved. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've been considering the refuge offered to us by God. It is a sure and certain promise, and it's an offer that cannot be outdone, and it's an offer that cannot be undone, but it's also an offer that is not yet manifest to us. Therefore, we have hope. Hope matters, and it's important that we understand its nature and its purpose so that we might gain the comfort of God's promises in all of our difficulties. It is this hope that makes the refuge a sweet haven of rest in times of trial, and it is this hope that secures our days when nothing makes sense. When we fly to the refuge of Christ, it is hope that we cling to, and that hope sustains us throughout all our lives. I, um, I felt at the end of last week's sermon that I left us kind of high and dry, and and didn't really bring it home to talk about the hope in our lives. I actually wasn't planning this sermon, Um, but but just in reflecting and contemplating what the Lord gave last week, it certainly fell into two parts, and so today you kind of get the conclusion of last week's sermon that I should have thought to prepare and have ready for you last week. We just would have stayed an extra hour. Everybody okay with that? We talked about flying to Christ, and we talked about the refuge that we have in him. We talked about the idea that Jesus is a singular being in all of creation, that there is nobody like him, that he is over all creation, being the second person of the Godhead. We talked about flying to him from our sin. We talked about flying to him from from our trials and flying to him from, from that which is our main problem, 
which is our rebellion against God. But we stop short of considering what it is to fly to him regularly, to fly to him as, as a people of God who lean on him for the only support that we ever could have and, frankly, ever will need. It is true that life is going to be nothing but flowers and roses and peaceful days if you listen to stupid people. Because the scripture tells us plainly in the words of Jesus himself that in this life you will have trouble. But Jesus goes on to say, fear not, I have overcome the world. In other words, the way that we look at this life should be shaped by what God says this life actually will entail, not by what popular preachers who are looking for your money tell you the life holds. Amen? And much of the conflict that the world has with the church is the fact that the church has not been the church. The church has instead been the world wearing nicer clothes. The church has become exactly what the world says it is and just Christianizes it a little bit, dresses it up a little bit, makes sure that it has good caps on its teeth, and then everything else is just fine. Beloved, hear me. That's not the way that God describes the world. God describes the world as antithetical to Christ. God describes the world as hating Christians. God describes the world as being opposed to us because fundamentally we are opposed to it. Fundamentally, we are opposed to the things that the world loves. We do not love evil. We do not love sin. We do not love wickedness. We do not love all the things that the world says it desires. And so we find ourselves in the midst of trials and conflicts and difficulties that we may not be prepared for. But God tells us if you fix your eyes only on this world, you're going to be blindsided. If you fix your eyes only on this world, you're going to fall short of what he's calling you to be because you're not going to quite know how to handle it. Instead, we need to understand that the refuge to which we fly may not have a manifest declaration of, oh, look at this good thing that came into my life because I trusted Christ today. This is a refuge of hope. And if we're going to fly to a refuge of hope, we have to understand the nature of hope. We have to understand what hope actually is. And the first thing in hope's nature is that it is future. By definition, hope is not yet. Amen? By definition, hope is something that you do not yet possess. It's something that is not now. So whether we speak of eternal or temporal, the very word hope implies that you do not yet possess what you have been promised. So if I say to you, for instance, tomorrow I will come to your house and fix your heater. She's going to stay awake all night hoping that I get that done. She's not going to get it, by the way, just as an aside. If I say to you, trust in Christ, and when you die, you will be escorted into the presence of God as a beloved child of God. It is still hope. It is still something that is not yet in your hand. Now, on the first instance, it's a hope that's going to be disappointed. In the second instance, it's a hope that is secure and true and real. The difference is partly, at least, in the one who gave the promise. I'm fallible. I'm broken. 
I'm flawed. I'm also overbooked. (laughs) But God is not. God is perfect. He is absolutely omnipotent. And hear this and take this to heart. He never promises anything that he is not able and intending to deliver. That's why the scripture tells us that all of the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen to the glory of the Father. Every single promise God ever made is guaranteed by his own nature. We've spent a lot of time talking about the guarantee of God on his word. But it matters in the context of our hope that we remember that. Because this is what unrails us. This is what sets us off on our stilts and it makes us unable to comprehend what's really going on. Is we don't see the things that we're hoping for. And difficulties arise and they make us look at our difficulties and say, well, if God was faithful, this thing wouldn't happen. Or if these things were were real, then I wouldn't have this circumstance in my life. We get so fixated on the difficulties and so fixated on the problems that we lose sight of the fact that we're not promised a a trouble-free life and we're not promised a life that is going to be free of these difficulties. In fact, God promises us that he will carry us through them unto himself. That's the nature of the world. And it's the nature of hope, and it's important that we understand that. Jeremiah 31, verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. And that promise was given by God through Ezekiel to the people of of Jerusalem and, and Judah while they were being carried away captive to the enemy. There was still the continued exodus out of Egypt or out of wow out of Judah while the um, while the Babylonians were were solidifying their rule. Ezekiel was already in the land of slavery, but they were still bringing people out. And this promise was given to the people who were mourning over their homeland. And God says, "Look, I'm giving you hope. I promise you." Now, full disclosure, it's seventy years in the future. Many of the people to whom he gave the promise that their children would return to the land don't live to see the event. Does that make God's promise not true? No. It just means that that temporal promise is a future possession. It's still real. It's still powerful. It's still true. And every promise that we have is a future possession. We have to know this. We have to know this in our bones. And the nature of hope demands it. Romans 8, verses 24 and 25 says, We were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? If we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So the idea is that we have a future hope and we have a hidden hope. But we also have a living hope. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What does it matter to us that our hope is living? Well, first of all, a dead hope means that it's not going to be fulfilled. But second of all, this points us to the reality that the heart and the core of our hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. The heart and the core of our hope is in the fact that Jesus Christ, our Savior, both died and was raised again and lives forever at the right hand of the Father. 
that he has been glorified, that he has been accepted, and that his sacrifice on our behalf has been accepted. The truth of the matter is that our hope divorced from Christ is empty. So as soon as you start to hope in a happy life in heaven, or a happy life here, or a happy things here, or this great event, or, you know, I hear people talk about heaven like it's only going to be the great family reunion. If that's your only definition of heaven, you need to redefine your soul. Because while there will be family reunion, the main course of heaven is the enjoyment of God eternal, and the presence of Jesus Christ, unfiltered and forever. That's the attraction. Which is why, coincidentally, lost people look at heaven and say, I don't want to go there. They're right. They have no desire to go there because they hate God. And so they try to redefine it into the endless day of fishing, the endless day of golf, the, the eternal day of racing or whatever. I see the little Dale Earnhardt, you know, fastest race car, fastest angel in heaven, whatever. I see all these things. And, and it's people redefining heaven for themselves. They have no interest in the God who is. They have no interest in worshiping him, and it's because their hearts are still dead. And any hope that is divorced from Christ is just as dead. We have to know the truth that everything that we have and everything that we desire is wrapped up in the person of Christ. Because of this, it is a blessed hope. Look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Starting at verse 11, please. Titus chapter 2, starting at verse 11, says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one despise you. It's a blessed hope, because just as our presence with Christ forever is the core of our hope, One day he will return and he will set all of this madness to right. We we look at the chaos in the world around us. We look at the insanity that's going on and the insanity that's being celebrated. And we think to ourselves, there's absolutely nothing we can do. It's all hopeless. Throw up your hands in despair and go hide in a cave. But that's not the truth of it. We're never called to go hide in a cave, even if it's the end. We're called to go stand and to speak the truth and to proclaim the truth of who Christ is and to be faithful with his name and with his glory every minute that we've been given breath in our bodies. It's a blessed hope because he is the answer to the problem. And he will bring about his glory on the earth and he will restore all things and he will bring all things into submission to his name and to his purpose when he sets his foot upon the earth. That day is coming, and we can look forward to it with an eager expectation. We can know that no matter how broken it is, just like that, it will be right again. We can know that, and we can rest in that, and we can allow that comfort and that confidence 
to give us strength in this day. There will come a time where God will put all this to rights. So we are not dependent upon any political group or any political action or any single person on the earth to set things to rights. And that's really important for us to remember as we enter into the next election cycle, which they just go on and on forever. This makes it a good and a precious thing. Look at First Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, please, verses sixteen and seventeen. Second Thessalonians two, and verses sixteen and seventeen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So he has given us this hope, and it is a good hope, and he has given it to us by grace. And he has given it to us in a way that will allow us to endure the things that are coming. He is our comfort. He is our hope. He is our consolation. He is our everything. 1 Peter 2.6 says, Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. But this hope's nature also makes it sustaining. You can live on this hope. Look at me at Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. starting at verse 21. This I recall to my mind, and therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him. Some context is helpful Because the book of Lamentations was penned by the prophet Jeremiah as Jeremiah was watching Jerusalem burn. He had seen the destruction of Jerusalem. He was watching the temple in flames. And this is his lament over Jerusalem being destroyed. And yet as he's watching the beloved city and watching the temple fall down, he says, my hope is in you, God. You are my everything, and therefore I have hope. It's important for us to have our head clear about this. Because sometimes the very things that God touches are the very things that we absolutely want Him not to. In fact, usually. Because the things that are most precious to us are often things that we have exalted to a place that they don't belong The things that are most precious to us are often the things that we have put in His place. And God is not willing to share His glory with another. So He teaches us and He shapes us. He is merciful, but He is also God. And He is determined that His people will worship Him. Because we need to. It's what we're made for. But this hope, rightly understood, will look at whatever's going on And know that God is still who He says He is. And be sustained in that knowledge. 
held up, shored up, strengthened, made strong and, and, and mighty in this truth. That there is nothing that can come against you that is bigger than your God. There's a lot of things bigger than you. You're not that much. But there's nothing bigger than your God. And to live with that perspective and to live with that understanding gives you balance in the midst of chaos. It gives you stability in the eye of the storm. So what does this mean to us? Well, obviously this comforts us in our trials. If we read on just a little more in Lamentations, starting in verse 25, it says this, The Lord is good to those who wait on him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should have hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent, because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. Now what does this mean, God does not afflict willingly? It means that it's not his sadistic joy to mess with your life. Whatever it looks like, whatever it feels like, when you look at the circumstances that are causing you trouble, understand that God does exactly what must be done to bring about maximum glory for Christ and maximum understanding for you. It is for your comfort. It is for your growth. It is for your edification. It is for your good that he does all that he does. And it is also for his glory. So knowing his character allows us to rest in that truth and still hope in him and receive comfort from his character in the midst of even the most difficult trials. It allows us to draw strength from his glory and his name. And it steadies our lives. You ever feel like your life is just on a, on a ship adrift at sea with no anchor, no rudder, no sail, no control whatsoever? You're just getting beat all over the place and barely holding on? Or is that just me? <laughs> it, it, it's just me, Gene says. Okay. Um, <laughs> the truth of the matter is, I know we all have that feeling sometimes. And, and most of those feelings come from the fact that we feel like if our days and our circumstances are out of our control, they're out of everybody's control. Like we're all just a victim being played by the world around us. It's because we have forgotten that there is nothing that happens apart from our God's sovereign will. These days are ordained by God. It means, first of all, that there was an appointed time of their beginning and there will be an appointed time of their end. But more than that, and I want you to hang on to this, they are ordained by God and therefore these days are important. Okay? We look at the world around us and we say to ourselves, I wish that everything was different. I wish we could go back to the old days. I wish we could go back to the 1950s or whatever your, your, your golden era is. I'm not even going to address the reality, oh, apparently I am, that, that those days are just as bad as these. You just don't remember them clearly. But I am going to tell you that the reality is God has prepared these days for you because he has prepared you for these days. 
There is something being accomplished by his glory and by his perfect will for even trials such as this. These days are manifestly for his glory and they are important and should not be minimized. God has purpose in your sorrow. He has purpose in what he has brought into your life. He has purpose in what he has ordained for your existence. He has purpose in your difficulties, purpose in your trials, purpose in your conflicts. He has purpose in every single thing that he brings to you. So if he has purpose, then he also has comfort to support you in that purpose. This is your hope. Fly to him. This is what we ought to do. We ought to be seeking his face in everything. And God has the end in sight for your trials, which means they are never meaningless cruelties. He knows what the end is. And I'm not saying the termination of them. I mean the focus. He knows exactly why he's brought these things into your life. And having brought them into your life, he will carry you through to completion in them so that you receive the good that you are intended to get from them. That good is a guaranteed reality. It just takes a little while. And his purposes will always be worth the difficulties. Amen. That is an always true statement. What God is bringing into your life is always worth the cost of what it takes to get it there. Period. Because what God has in mind for your life is always best. So as people of God, there is no room for us to be wallowing in our misery and whining about our difficulties. Instead, we ought to be encouraging one another. I'm not saying don't share these things. But our purpose ought to be to encourage one another and to lift one another up and to pray for one another and always to refocus one another by the word of God to see things aright. Because I'll tell you something about myself that I believe is true about everybody here. When I'm in the middle of it, I don't see out of it very clearly. Amen? I need somebody to come alongside me and say, hey, brother, let's think about it this way. Let's go to the Word. Let's pray. Let's understand what truth is. That's our job for one another. That's our role as the body of Christ. The primary function of the body of Christ is the ministry of the gospel unto ourselves, one another, and unto the world around us. We are always to be gospel-driven. If we are going to be nothing but a social club, go someplace else. Amen? We are to be gospel-driven, gospel-focused, gospel-purpose. And that doesn't mean we don't get to have fun. That doesn't mean we don't get to enjoy one another's company. And that doesn't mean that there is not a social aspect to our fellowship. But that is not its purpose. That's sort of the overflow. We are gospel-focused and gospel-driven. And we have to be. Because we need the gospel more than we need anything else. None of those other things and none of those other organizations are called to be the gospel in the world. That is the responsibility of the church. Let the Lions be the Lions. Let the JCs be the JCs. Let every other group be whatever it's going to be. We are the church of God. And we are called to be the church and to be gospel-centric. 100% proclaiming the gospel to the world and to ourselves. And to live that out with determination and with purpose. This is our hope. 
And part of our great difficulty with the world in which we live is that we have shunted our hope to the side and instead basked in the dirty water of the earth's cast-off swimming pool and said, oh, this looks like a nice place to have a drink. No, thank you. I don't like drinking pond scum. I've done it, but I don't like it. Our calling is to be something different. And when we give ourselves to the things that the world adores, we should expect to not enjoy it because we no longer are fit for those things. We have been made new. We have been given new natures, new hearts, new minds, new souls. And as new beings, we want new things. We want glory. We want truth. We want honor. We want God. And as soon as you begin to fall back into the old ways of settling for the old things, the new man and the old man go to war inside of you and you are unsettled in every way. Beloved, we have hope beyond that. We need to remember what it is to be the people of God. We need to remember how God calls us to live this out. The flip side of it is that knowing this hope is real keeps us from despair. Now, some of you are are people who, when you are under the burden, you become rage monsters. That would be me. Some of you are the other side of the spectrum, where where you are burdened, you are given to despair. The quiet desperation of a dying man, that's sort of how it looks. And you see people that just sort of shrink into themselves, and they collapse under the weight of their burdens. And in the end of it, what we need to recognize is that God gives us hope to defend us from both of these poor extremes. Turn to Psalm 119. We'll start at the first verse and read to the 177th. No, not quite. 176, that's all. Because there's only 176 there. All right, so Psalm 119, verse 49. Remember the word to your servant, upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort in affliction, for your word has given me life. I'm going to read that again. Remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope, for this is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. Beloved, if we have our head on straight and our eyes fixed steadfastly on the glory of God, despair should not be in our vocabulary. Now, I understand that we're all human and sometimes we're going to get sideswiped and we're going to give in to despair and we're going to give in to sorrow and we're going to give in to this debilitating grief for whatever circumstance you're looking at. But the solution to it is very simple. To give our attention to the Word of God. It is life to us. The Word of God gives us life gives us hope, gives us understanding, gives us clarity, gives us truth. It gives us a perspective that allows us to see beyond the moment. And more than that, it gives us hope. When we see the Word and we see the truth of the Word, God gives us hope through His Word. It is a sure and steadfast hope, and nothing can ever destroy it. Nothing can ever take it away. Nothing can ever wrest it from your hand. Nothing can ever make your hope less true 
because God is the one who is the guarantee of your hope. It's his work to make sure that you get what he has promised you. It is not your work. Which is why we need to understand that at its core, its source, it's anchored in the very promise of God. Our hope is not the imagination of men. Amen and amen and amen. If I were making this stuff up, I would sincerely desire that all of you would leave. If I were making this stuff up, I would sincerely desire that there would be no one to ever listen to the sound of my voice again because I need not be heard. This is anchored in the truth of God. This is anchored in the word of God, not my opinions. I haven't made any of this up. I don't have any new and original thoughts for you. I have only the word of God. I have only the truth of scripture unpacked and expanded for your view. This is what God gives to us. It's not something that is frangible, because when I make it up, guess what I get to do tomorrow? I get to change my mind and remake it up. I get to make something different. If I'm a creative person and I've made it up in the first place, I can give you new hopes all day of the week. I can give you new things to hope on and rest upon, new revelations from heaven and new things and new ideas that that mean nothing. And I can't be held to any of them because... I can just keep changing them. I should write a book. It's not based upon our ideas or our circumstances. So often a failed human hope is based on, oh, look, I got this thing that I thought I wanted, and now my hope is sure. I'm going to get the rest of it. This is going to produce all my things. Have any of you ever been a person given to shopping to heal your ills? You, you, you find the thing that you're just going to want and it's going to solve your problems and you have it. And then it didn't solve my problems. But look, this next thing will. And then you have that one and that didn't solve my problems either. But oh, if I get the next one, that's going to take care of it. And then your house is overcrowded with all the things you shouldn't have bought in the first place and your bank account's empty and nothing's any better because those things are not a hope. They're not. It's the same truth with substance. There are people who fly to drugs and, and medications to take, away their, to take away their ills and their sorrows. And I'm not saying that if the doctor has prescribed you something for, for something that you need, you shouldn't take it. Please don't mishear me. But your default should not be anything but Christ. Your default should be running to Christ to find your hope. He's going to answer your problems. He's going to answer what you need. He is going to answer the fullness of every longing in your heart. And He's going to give hope and sense and meaning to your life. In the end, as a Christian, we have an obligation to run to Him. This means that when our circumstances change, our hope doesn't. Amen? If I'm, if I'm rusting in anything but Christ, that's a circumstance, even if it's a possession or a behavior or anything else. It's a circumstance. It is liable to change. And if I have rested my hope in it, and that circumstance in which I have rested my hope changes, what then happens to my hope? It evaporates like the morning dew. 
It's gone with not even a trace of its existence. It has ceased to be. Because in the end, that hope was empty anyway. As Christians, we need to rest our hope not on the word of our own imaginations or our ideas or our circumstance or on the word of other men. No man can ever resolve all of your problems. For those of you that are politically inclined, I'm not going to make any apologies for what I'm about to say. But whoever the other party elects to whatever office you're worried about is not going to change it one way or the other. Only God can change it. Whoever your party elects to whatever office you're worried about is not going to change it one way or the other. Only God can change it. Now, I am aware that we are supposed to be good citizens, and therefore I vote. I also vote because it gives me the right to scream and yell when it doesn't go how it should have gone. I don't think that you are allowed to scream and yell if you haven't participated in the process. That's just my opinion. That's completely free. I try to be a good citizen because God calls me to be a good citizen. I pray for our leaders because God calls me to pray for our leaders. But I don't trust them. And I certainly don't trust in them. And you will never find me hoping in them. My hope is in Christ. And many of our political organizations need to understand that, especially the ones on the right, who seem to think that a certain leader is equivalent to Christ made flesh. Christ alone is our hope. And nothing else will do. Be involved in the process. Be a good citizen. Do your due diligence. Join the groups and the committees. I don't care. But hope in Christ. And hope in Christ alone. In the end, this is because our hope is made up of things eternal and not things carnal. Look, this world can blow up and it will. Peter promises us that this world is destined to perish by fire. Does that look like Russia arming its nuclear weapons? Maybe. I don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but I know that one day this world will vanish in fire. Does that mean global warming will actually someday be real? Maybe. I don't know. But I know that this world is not going to last forever, and whatever we do can't make it. I also know that that doesn't matter. Because my hope is in that which is eternal. For instance, I hope for a crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So do you long for the coming of Christ? Do you dwell deeply and constantly on the thought that at any moment the eastern sky could split in two and we would behold the face of Christ coming to receive us to himself? Does that thought fill you with joy? Or do you think, I need to go clean some stuff out of my closet? If you have loved his appearing and longed for it, there is laid up for you a crown of righteousness. This is your hope. Your hope is that God will surely give to you everything that he has promised. 
1 Peter 5, 4 says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So that crown of righteousness is also a crown of glory. And it will never be taken away and it will never fade away and it will never ever pass out of existence because it is eternal and not temporal. We have to focus our attention on that which actually is. Look, I'm not going to go so far as to say that this world is all imaginary. But I am going to tell you it's a vapor. It's a very transient thing. The the lives in this world matter because they are connected to eternal. The things in this world matter because they influence us for eternity. This world is the shaping ground. It is the proving ground. It is the place where we are given power and opportunity to glorify God with everything that he's given to us. It's the place where we learn who he is. It's not the place we're going to stay. It's not the place that you're going to live the rest of your days in. This world is just so brief compared to the span of eternity. You guys remember the charts that they used to give us when we were in grade school and they were trying to teach us about evolution and how new man was? I'm not supporting evolution. You know where I stand on that. But you remember they talked about if the, if the age of the earth was one day, 24 hours, that man would appear only in the last second of the last hour of the day in comparison to the age. That was their way to teach little children that the world is very old and that we are very young. I want you to take that picture and I want you to flip it. And I want you to pick the biggest number that you possibly can. Call it a Googleplex of Googleplex of years. If you can fathom that number, more power to you. I can define it for you, but I can't fathom it. And you say all of that time is one day, 24 hours. And you look at your existence in this one day. And you say all of your life here is the opposite, the, the negative inversion of a Googleplex of Googleplex of years, amount of a minuscule amount of time in comparison to the rest of it. And that's day one of eternity. We cannot fathom how much it is. And yet we pour all of our time and all of our attention into the picosecond of the smallest piece, thinking that it's going to give us, that's a real number, by the way, (laughs) the picosecond is a millionth of a second. We, we, We pour all of our attention into that smallest number of the smallest part of the least important part of our existence, and we think that's going to satisfy us. It doesn't. It can't. There is no way in the world that we will ever find hope or joy or satisfaction or contentment or life in this life. We only find it in Christ. We only find it in the hope of his coming. We only find it in eternity. And we need to flip the script on our lives so that we're looking beyond this moment and see things as they really are. It gives us a perspective that lets us stand in the midst of our difficulties. We have the hope of a place in heaven. In John 14, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will return again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's his promise. 
If you belong to Christ, you will never be homeless in heaven. In fact, I would go so far as to say there will be no homeless people in heaven because everybody in heaven belongs to Christ. You will be housed in God's mansion. This this translation that King James gives and the New King James carries over is a bad translation. It says mansions. The real word should be apartments. It's the idea that God gives us space, not in some outer ring of his glorious palace, but he gives us space in his home. We're going to be where he is. And we're going to be where he is forever. There is a place in heaven with your name already on the door. And when you get there, it'll be finished. <laughs> you, you won't have to hang out in some temporary cottage while the house finally gets built. There's a place in heaven made for you. And it will be everything that it's supposed to be. Beloved, there's our hope. It goes beyond this life. And it goes beyond these things. And it's also purchased and guaranteed by the most precious trade imaginable. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. There's a lot of talk today about cryptocurrency and and the failing dollar and all of these sort of things. And I want to give you the biblical perspective on what is the most precious and steadfast currency ever made. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 17. If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold or dollars or crypto or anything else from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Beloved, our hope was purchased by the most expensive currency the universe has ever known. Our hope was purchased by the blood of Christ. Amen. You ever see the, the tropes in, in comedy movies where... Somebody's running through the house of the rich person. And, Be careful of the Ming vase. And inevitably the Ming vase falls to the earth and the rich guy is broken as much as his vase is. Why? Because he spent a lot of money on it. It was therefore precious to him. Do, do you think that God would ever for one moment forsake something that he purchased with something as precious as the blood of Christ? Is that even conceivable to you? If it is, you don't know your God and you don't know Christ. You don't know the worth of His blood. You don't know the worth of His nature. If it's just that you never thought of it that way, okay, start to think of it that way. Rest your hope in the truth that God values Christ more than He values you. And that's a really good thing. Because since he values Christ more than he values you, you are safe in Christ because Christ has purchased you with his blood. 
He has bought you by his own suffering. You are not yours, but you are his. And as such, he has guaranteed that God will make good on every single promise because of the value of that with which you were purchased. Bear it in mind. Let it shape your behavior. Let it shape your thinking. Let it shape your comfort. Let your heart rest with joy in the fact that your God purchased you at such a price. Because if He's purchased you at such a price, He will absolutely protect everything in your life that matters. And He will absolutely protect you because you have cost Him so much. Do you understand that? Cling to that. Rest in that. Let that be your comfort and your strength in days. And let it be something that calls to us to rejoice. Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who bless, who bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. And do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Paul goes on from there, but I think that makes the point. None of those things line up with what the world says will make you joyful and hopeful and happy. None of those things are are on their radar at all. But every single one of them is consistent with the constant message of Scripture. That we are not to be focused on ourselves or on our own glory. And, and here's a little secret. I'll let you have it at the end. The more you focus on you and your life, the more you rob yourself of hope. But when you give your heart and give your lives and give your time and your attention and your resources and your energy to those in the body and those outside that you're ministering Christ unto, when you let your life be about others instead of about you, something happens inside. And suddenly hope becomes a constant reality. And life suddenly takes on meaning and purpose and brightness where it never has before. The reason for this is quite simple. You were not made to live a selfish life. You were made to live a life of service to the kingdom of God. That's the reason you were made. That's the reason you were here. That's the purpose and the calling in your life. And most of the time when we find ourselves void of hope and void of of comfort and void of joy, it's because we have poured our lives into something that it was not designed to contain. And it doesn't fit. God calls us to give ourselves to others and to live this out. In doing so, it becomes something that we cherish. Look at Isaiah chapter 33, please. Isaiah 33, verses 5 and 6.
The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. And the fear of the Lord is his treasure. God values those who fear him. He treasures them. When you live your life with a fear of the Lord as the heart of your existence and a longing for him as the thing that defines you, you are valuing what God values. Let that be your treasure. Let that be your joy. Let that be your hope. Let that be everything that you are, is that you know the God who is. And in doing this, your life then becomes something of substance. Hope will always meet challenges. You're always going to be challenged on this. We are called to cling to hope regardless of those challenges because God will absolutely prove his hope. He will absolutely prove himself true. The challenge then in front of us is when hope is challenged, do we cast it away for the baubles of the world? Do we cling to temporal trickeries? The slick words of smooth preachers who will tell us things that aren't true just because they sound good? A lot of people do. Or will we press further in and cling to the truth of God and know that what is promised to us is eternal and untouchable? And know that over everything that God does, His purpose is constant. It's the drumbeat, the driving source of everything that He does. It is His purpose, unchanging, unalloyed, unmarked. Our God has the same purpose now that he did before he ever said, let there be light. It doesn't ever change. And that gives us stability because we're aimed at him and aimed at his purpose. Take hope in that. Whatever you're facing, whatever you face tomorrow, take hope in that. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace. And I pray, Lord, that as we think on these things, that you would let us communicate them firstly to ourselves, God. That these truths would be pressed into our souls and pressed into our hearts in such a way that we would never forget them or forsake them. But God, we also pray that you would give us opportunity and wisdom and ability to speak these things to others. Lord, let us never be silenced by their hatred, silenced by their opposition. Let us never be afraid. But let us speak the truth to all whom you bring into our lives. We pray, God, that over and around our lives, the glory of the risen Christ will shine with beauty. That we would draw hope, that we would see hope in others, and that we would share hope with the world. We ask this so that Christ, the Lamb who was slain, would receive the full reward of his suffering, and that all hearts would love him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.